Hey everybody, thanks for checking out this episode of My First Sketch at MyFirstSketch.com. I'm Josh Heilm. As always, feel free to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or on SoundCloud to get it automatically. You can catch the show on the Stitcher app as well. Like the podcast on Facebook at Facebook.com slash MyFirstSketch. Email me at Josh at MyFirstSketch.com. And follow me on Twitter at MyFirstSketch. Philly Sketch Fest is here, so why don't you start it all off tonight with the third annual Sketch Comedy Film Festival on the Roxy Theater at 7.30. We have shorts and videos submitted from all over the country, and I think there's a couple international choices as well. Thursday, May 31st, and Friday, June 1st, we move to the playground at the Adrian to start the live shows. Three shows both nights, 7, 8.30, and 10. And you can stay for the late night sketch prov on Friday after the 10 p.m. show. On June 2nd, Saturday afternoon, come to Amalgam Comics at 2578 Frankfurt Avenue to join us in a conversation about community, diversity, and identity in comedy. 2 p.m. at Amalgam Comics. We'll then head to the Ruba Club on Saturday evening. Three more shows, 7, 8, 30, and 10. And then close out the weekend on Sunday at Underground Arts with the final three shows. Again, 7, 8.30, and 10. Tickets for all the live shows are available on Ticketfly. You can buy individual shows. You can buy passes for the entire night. But if you want a quick and easy link, just type in myfirstsketch.com slash tickets. To celebrate the 10th anniversary of Philly Sketch Fest, which is the aluminum anniversary according to tradition, We'll be collecting canned goods that will be donated to Phil Abundance, which is the largest hunger relief organization in Delaware Valley. So before you come to the shows, stop by a nearby mini-mart. I'm sure there's one near our venue. Whichever venue you go to, pick up a can or two, or 17, and help us spread some good in the world. Today's guest is Chris Borger, currently a member of Marvin Berry, based in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. His first sketch is called Barber's Code. I read the role of the barber, and Chris reads all of the customers that come in and get introduced. Now, a word of warning, there is a bit of mic static and rustling throughout the sketch in this interview, and I do apologize for that. But it's still a fun chat, so let's go to the sketch. Barber's Code. Dave enters looking angry sad. He sits in front of the barber. Hey there, Dave. What'll it be? Just a trim. (laughs) Begins trimming. Okie doke. Hey, Dave, is something bothering you? (laughs) I promise you won't tell anyone. It's, It's sensitive information. Of course, it's the Barber's Code. If I reveal any of my clients' secrets, my barber's license is revoked. It would be a violation of the Royal Hair Artistry Ministry. My lips are sealed. (laughs) I just found out my wife is having an affair. On me, of all people. And I've decided that (laughs) I'm going to find out who she's sleeping with and kill him. Dave pulls out a hammer. For sure, do not hammer a man. Listen, I can get you help. The barber reaches for a phone. No, you promised. You you can't tell anyone. All right, all right, fine. D- uh, Dave gets up to leave. I'm only half done. That's fine. Remember the barber's code. Dave exits and Mike enters. Hey there, first time in? You bet. It was recommended to me by a close friend. I'm looking for a hot shave. Great. Have a seat. Hmm. Not a lot to shave. So if I'm being honest, I I mostly came in here today to get some stuff off my chest. Christ. The guy who recommended me this place? Dave? Well, I'm I'm kind of fooling around with his wife. Fooling around? Yeah, you know, playing pranks, throwing snowballs, making balloon animals, visiting ball pits, wearing masks. The issue is every time we fool around, we always end up banging. You know, uh, you know, banging, playing percussion music. I have a set of Tahitian bongos, and she used to drum in a marching band in college. Oh, we really jam. 
it's bad though because afterwards we get so exhausted we just collapse in a heap and you know enjoy netflix Ooh, what shows are you watching Oh, no, I should have clarified. Netflix is a sex apparatus that David's wife and I use to fornicate each other with. What? Both of our genitals are bound within nets. And we just we just cover and mash them with, uh, you know, Flick cereal. Netflix. Flick cereal? Store brand name of Trick cereal. If tricks are for kids, then flicks are for adults. Specifically, the genitals. And it packages with sex nets and marketed as a couple's love thing and they call it netflix surely it's a copyright violation yeah you would think so huh so how do you know dave david is my only son wait you're sleeping with your daughter-in-law you bet anally sometimes for me not her my anally she's a wonderful woman Welp, I should get going. David invited me to break some cinder blocks with hammers in the woods. God forbid he ever find out about me and Shelly. He would just fuck my shit. Remember, Barbara's code. Mike exits and Shelly enters. You ever cut a lady's hair? Uh, sure. What would it be? A bob. I want my head to look like an upside down teardrop. I want a haircut that says, I'd like to speak to your manager. Sounds good. See any good movies lately? I can't believe I'm sleeping with my husband's father. Shelly looks at the barber, disappointed at his, by his lack of. Uh, Shelly looks at the barber, disappointed by his lack of reaction. Oh, oh, holy, oh, holy shit! Oh, me neither. Oh, that's crazy. Oh, you know we've met before, my good sir, some fifty-three years ago. Some fifty-three years ago, in a bathhouse in Guam. Nine months later, a baby was born. Wait, what? That baby would go on to have a son. And that baby would betray his son by sleeping with his son's wife. Me. So, we had a child in the 60s. You raised the child as a single mother, and then married your grandson, only to cheat on him with your son, who is also my son? And you can't tell anyone. There are laws. Well, even you acknowledging these facts yourself counts as communicating classified evidence. How? Are you really willing to risk your license over that? Shelley begins to exit. I've always wanted a son. He'll never know. Barber's code. Shelley exits and Stuart enters. Hey there, just the usual. Anything interesting happened today? Nope. Cool. So anyway, my whole life has been a lie. I'm actually a series of duffel bags. Each duffel bag is stiff with enchanted rabbits who collect a hive mind is powerful enough to disguise itself as me, an average 42-year-old Polish French male. My image is masked through a series of tiny paintings that collectively form a man's image. As I age, new paintings are added, or removed accordingly. The paintings are commissioned out to a collective of enchanted badges. Who's enchanting all these critters? I'll never tell anyone but you, and you'll never tell anyone. Barber's Code. Fade to black. Hey, Chris. Hey, how's it going, buddy? All right, so tell me about this sketch. All right, so uh, the story of this sketch is uh, it's a little, it's a pretty funny one. Um, I was living in Vancouver, so we're all from Edmonton. Um, about two years ago, I moved to Vancouver uh, for about a year. Vancouver is kind of like Canada's Hollywood in a way where there's a lot more uh, movie business, more film jobs and stuff to try to pursue. Yeah, because a uh, bunch so of like the CW shows, and, well, I don't know what network there are on up there, but like a bunch of our shows do go up there because it's cheaper to film in Vancouver than it is to in Hollywood. Oh, totally. Yeah, you get tax breaks, you can film, get like cheap Canadian extras. Um, so my plan briefly was to go up to Vancouver and try to do more of that stuff. 
Um, and when I was out there, Vancouver is also, I guess, kind of like America's West Coast in the fact that uh, marijuana is just fully legal out there. It's a full, full free-for-all. Sure. So when I got out there, that was a very big kind of novelty to me and uh, was really pursuing that. <laughs> so um, I would find myself like just very, very high writing sketches. And uh, apparently in the first week I got to Vancouver, I wrote this sketch and sent it to everyone else in the Marvin Berry troupe back in Edmonton. And a couple of months had passed. And we had a show back in Alberta, in the province where we're all from. And I was just going over the the set list we have for our show, kind of uh, Skyping everyone else in the troupe uh, to talk about everything. And I had noticed one sketch called Barber's Code, which I did not recognize at all. Uh, so I was like, all right, great. What's this Barber's Code sketch? Cool new name. I don't recognize this. And everyone was like, oh, you're joking. I was like, no, no. What, what's this new sketch? Quinn, Sam, Mike, Nikki, who wrote this one? And they said, you wrote the sketch, Chris. You did this. <laughs> and I had absolutely zero recollection or memory of writing the sketch at all. So then we got to do a read-through, which is a very messy read-through. It's all over the place. It's a crazy sketch. There's kind of a direction, not really. Uh, so I had gotten super, super high one night, written this sketch, sent it to everyone, they read through it and liked it enough to put it into a show we were doing. And I, I had no recollection of it at all. So we did it. We did it for the show. And I set it up to the audience as the kind of talking them through it being like, Hey, I wrote the sketch. I don't remember it by no means. Does it have a direction or a purpose? It's all over the place. It's really messy. Uh, there's a bunch of weird characters. Um, so we did it. It was a bit of like got maybe one or two laughs. And then, uh, probably about 80% through the sketch. I just called it off and I was like, all right, we're never seeing this again. <laughs> so wait, okay. So you, you perform it, but you give a preface beforehand and then you still abandon ship halfway through. That's crazy to me. It was because it's like, we had to give some preface because it's a, such a weird sketch. And for the most part, I think that we're a lot more grounded in our sketches than this one, which is really just throwing whatever, whatever I was feeling in that moment out there in Vancouver as yes every like I've talked to three of the other members of Marvin Barry I've seen a couple of your other sketches online this is the weirdest of of what I've seen so far and it it does seem a bit out of character for the rest of Marvin Barry that I've I've noticed so far yeah totally not our style at all so we felt that we had to definitely preface it and I think that I found um, – I wanted to wrap it up because it was going so bad that I just wanted to acknowledge the, the, how the audience was feeling and be like, hey, guys, we're on your side too. We get that this makes no sense. This is total bullshit. And it's just like stoned ramblings. So uh, I think I called it off about 75% of the way through because it was like, it's not, it's not going to redeem itself. More of this absurdity is not going to win the audience over. So, uh, And then actually we did get a good laugh on the wrapping up of us and us kind of – uh, telling the audience, "Hey, we get it. We're on your side. This is really fucked up. This is this were is you, no good." Were you in the sketch when you like? Were you acting in the sketch, or did you come off stage like you know this isn't like? Uh, I was in the sketch. Um, I played the character who had that kind of short, like we were banging, then we, you know, this that happened. That line actually somehow got a laugh in that. Uh, okay. the, uh, like the kind of like we were, so you're the father. The father, yeah. I played the father in the sketch. The weird yeah. family thing, yeah. I played the father, and then I was not a character on it, but the character who was like, so my whole life is a lie. I'm a series of duffel bags filled of enchanted animals. How about halfway through that monologue, I oh, I yeah. came on and was like, all right, let's never see this again. Fuck this. Let the end of sketch. This is enough. <laughs> Which I think is the only time we've ever cut off a sketch halfway through, but it, it I think it was necessary for that one. I don't think I've ever experienced that. Like I'm, in all the sketch comedy I've gone to, I don't think I've ever had one of the performers come out and be like, "All right, you know, this was not, this isn't working. It's not going let's, well. Let's just move on." Yeah, I don't, I don't think I've ever had that. We do a lot of improv, so I think that was kind of my improv mind of going. I think there, I've done enough improv scenes that are just wipe the stage and move on, going nowhere. Like absolutely, everyone wants this to be over. Why would we not make this just be over? kind of thing yeah like we're not committed enough to this sketch why would we force you to watch this 
now I want to go back and ask everyone else, like, what is it that you guys were like, yeah, let's see what, let's see how this goes in a real show. Like, yeah, why put it in? I, it wasn't my choice to put it in. I would never put this in a show. I totally disagree with the, the choice to put that in a live show. <laughs> um, all right, let's go back to the beginning. What were you into growing up? What, what made you laugh? What were you watching? Uh, man, growing up, I was really into the Simpsons. Uh, it was a huge, huge influence of me That's as a was. young boy with syndication and Canada's mm-hmm. comedy central. I'd get home and we'd have three Simpsons episodes back to back, uh, from four to five thirty. So I'd watch those most days. And, um, in Canada, it's kind of a it's a weird thing where we're we're high enough north that you have really really long cold winters, so you really uh, have to make your own fun from a young age, or you'll go crazy. So there's a lot of like hanging out in basements, shooting the shit with your friends, making fun of each other, uh, playing really weird games, or like just like doing skits or doing weird sketches or like early improv before you know what improv is. As a youth, is like a, a very common thing in the city we're from just from like the weird cabin fever that exists within the city for, you know, six months of the year, everyone's inside. So uh, I would say what made me laugh as a young kid would be like myself, my friends, and uh, my sister, who also did a lot of improv and comedy growing up. We would just be out. We grew up on an acreage, uh, kind of even more isolated from our friends. So it was a lot of my sister and I uh, finding our own fun and making our own like short movies, short videos, little weird uh, comedy videos as kids is how we found our own fun or kind of laughed. Like do any of those videos still exist? They do. Yeah. A couple are like on Facebook that we put on because Facebook come out when, when I was maybe 14, 15, okay. I think when Facebook surfaced. So we have a couple that have existed through Facebook videos. Uh, one called the day the chairs came alive as where we realized that if we had someone controlling the cushion and big recliner chairs from behind the couch you could make it look like the chair was uh, talking so that was all we needed to make i think like a 12 minute video about the world getting taken over by various chairs um so yeah weird dumb shit is really what entertained me (laughs) um like so you're making these little sketches like little um improv-y things were you familiar with sketch comedy at that point life like so i knew that kids in the hall existed uh, and that was because Kids in the Hall was after The Simpsons. So after The Simpsons, I would catch the occasional Kids in the Hall and like watch Mad TV here and there, or like the best of SNL, like the best of like Will Ferrell on SNL. Would rent those uh, DVDs from Blockbuster. Um, but really, it was a lot of uh, my grandmother uh, took care of my sister and I a lot growing up um, because both my parents were working. So my grandmother would uh, take us on a lot of weeknights and. Um, she would make us put on little skits for her. She'd be like, all right, go. You have half an hour. You have to go make a skit about being someone's a judge. Someone go be a judge. So it was really weird proto improv that I was thrown into as a child. Um, what? That's, that's, that's so, um, like, I don't want to like, I'm trying to think of the right adjective without sounding insulting, but that's so bizarre. Like it is weird. It was weird to be, <laughs> it was like for her to be like, entertain me. Uh, TV isn't good enough children is what entertains me i think it was she was just really into like activities and trying to make things fun for us as kids uh, mm-hmm. i knew that we liked it knew that we liked playing characters knew that we liked to watch judge judy and then quote lines from it so i think she definitely like steered into the skit of uh us putting on skits as kids so she really encouraged that so like i think my grandmother had a big influence on uh our childhood leading into like pursuing comedy now as adults uh so so you would watch kids in the hall after simpsons do you have a favorite kids in the hall do you have a favorite sketch of theirs uh you're like squishing my head i think is always a classic i think my mom always would reference that as we were kids or in pictures and stuff was always the funniest shit you could do would be stand in front of a photo and and then uh kevin mcdonald who uh was in kids in the hall has like done things here and there with our uh, improv company that all of Marvin Barry is part of. So you've been able to like, meet him and talk to him as a human. So I guess Kevin McDonald would be my favorite, but that's, that's really big. Sure. Who, which one of them have I met before in real life? <laughs> um, and I always, and I generally ask, like I'll ask the Canadians about the kids in the hall, but like, do you have a favorite Saturday Night Live cast member? Oh, uh, John, like it's, it's pretty hard to go against. I think John Candy growing up in the nineties, like the uncle, 
He's not SNL. Is he not SCTV originally at all? He's 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 SCTV. Well, I just lost my Canadian passport. No, but uh, no, I'm asking about SNL. Oh, you're sorry. We can talk about John Candy on SCTV for oh, sure. Oh, you're saying your favorite S? Or you're asking my favorite S SNL or my favorite S- Saturday Night Live? Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. cool. Uh, yeah. We can talk about John Candy. We can talk about John Let's do John Candy. Yeah, that's what Canadian SNL is. Um, <laughs> and like, I got to go for uh, Bill Murray, probably in the early like SNL days, like sure. held through in my life. Who's like someone who I've continued to watch throughout the years. Um, but like, as far as SNL goes, as well. I remember renting uh, renting like the best of SNL and uh, the best mm-hmm. of Will Ferrell on SNL from Blockbuster, watching that and then thinking that was the level of all SNL shows and being like, I fucking love SNL. It's great. It's always a hit. It's fantastic. And then watching it on an actual Saturday night in like, you know, 2005, being like, what the fuck is this? This is awful. <laughs> this is- <laughs> oh, no. And that's generally like a decent error to me like there's a lot of good people in that in that time i think i was just holding it to the standard of like the best ofs where like you watch sure. uh, you need more cowbell and you're like oh that's always going to be the standard of uh what they're producing sure and, and like everyone says like everyone thinks that like the current era there everyone's current area era of snl someone's complaining about it like no matter how good it was right. and then we look back fondly but like I think there's at least one really funny thing in every episode, maybe two, maybe three. Like, you know, there might be a lot of like, oh, okay. I, I, but like, there's usually generally something amazing right. every week to me. Like, yeah, I really grew up in the age of uh, YouTube just becoming emerging of like, you know, 2005, 2010 of like sure. the early YouTube age. So I found a lot of this. Was sketch- there anything on YouTube that's like. Yeah, like the whitest kids you know and uh, face with like their power thirst videos was like huge of just like quick edits and like learning would make you want to learn how to use like Windows Movie Maker or Microsoft Movie Maker or whatever it is to like make your own YouTube videos. Um, I had never heard of the second thing that you said. Uh, Windows Movie Maker? No, no, no. The the second team. The second, oh, like, Picnic. The, was it? Yeah. Uh, they would do – they were like a big Canadian – online thing they did the power thirst video like the the energy drink that'll make you so energetic so like they were like one of like the first big youtube videos um that like hit like 30 million views or whatever um i'm sure you'd recognize a few of like their uh, classics they went through but they were like the the kings of 2007 youtube (laughs) (laughs) I'll, I'll, i'll go digging and see if i yeah, but that doesn't okay. Um, so where do you? All right, so you're performing these little sketches and stuff for your grandmother. <laughs> How do you transition to performing for people that are not your grandmother? Right. Uh, so my grandma had friends. She spread the word. Um, <laughs> no, in uh, Canada as well, we're fortunate enough to have like improv teams, mm. uh, which are just like. Your high school, you have a football team, you have a volleyball team, you have an improv comedy team. Which you're the fourth. So, uh, you're the fourth of the Marvin Berry people I've talked to, and I still don't understand this. Like that improv exists within schools. Yeah, like, like, and I and I kind of like rationalized it because like our like speech and debate teams generally do have some kind of dramat- dramatic uh, section to it too. But I would have never have guessed improv would have been like a competitive thing in high school. That's. I don't think that's a thing here in in America. Yeah, it's a. I don't know. Or at least around me in Philadelphia. Right. I think it, once again, it comes down to just like having a big culture of making your own fun and a big culture of like in Canada being funny <laughs> matters. I guess. Or if you're going to survive the winter, you're going to be hanging out in a lot of basements with a lot of weirdos. So like, <laughs> you might as well make the best of it. Uh, and sure. that translates even to like the school systems of having the Canadian improv games. They're called the CIG, which is like a big nationwide tournament. They have a rubric, which has like a 149 point system that you get graded on, which is standardized throughout the country. And you like compete with your high school team and provincials. And if you win provincials, you got to go to the national tournament, uh, which is like in Ottawa, which Canada's Washington, DC and mm-hmm. um, compete against all the other high schools in a big comedy tournament. Uh, so I did that in high school. My sister was a couple years older than me, and um, being influenced from my grandmother from a young age, we would 
deep into like this sketch make up sketchy sketch comedy world, I guess. And um, joined the high school team uh, and then competed throughout high school. And then there's a, a improv company in the city we live in called Rapid Fire Theater that we're all in now. Mm-hmm. And uh, auditioned for that after high school and made it in as a 18 year old. And then for the last eight years, I've been jamming it with them. So we're doing we do uh, theater sports or comedy sports, uh, just kind of like short form improv shows, and do uh, shows every Friday night. And then Saturday, we do some long form shows, and have just been with that company ever since. And I think for the most part, that all of you basically went into that group or auditioned for that group. Yeah, totally out of high school. I think Nikki might have been the latest. Yeah, so I think all of us would have been Mike and yeah, Sam and I both definitely did. We we're both the same age. Quinn uh, was from a different city, so he was in like their city's equivalent of that company and then transferred over once he was uh, in like second year university, like nineteen or twenty. Um, Mike as well, yeah, right out of high school, and then Nikki was the only one who was kind of an actor before she was an improviser, where the rest mm-hmm. of us all kind of our roots in improv. Um, but she was actually, yeah, in the acting program at the university before she hopped over. But yeah, it's a it's a big thing in Edmonton, in Alberta especially. The improv community is like a, a big part of our culture, which is, is nice. It's a nice part of all the coldness that you get some camaraderie and joy out of it somehow. Um, now, you, you mentioned moving to Vancouver. Yeah. And like, I guess, trying to make it as a film actor, maybe auditioning more and doing or TV actor. Like, did you do anything while you're in Vancouver? So I did when I was like 19, 20 years old, I was on like, did like a pilot for this like kids sketch show, kind of like Mad TV SNL, but for like 13 year olds, that was a pilot that like kept on getting like green lit and then not green lit and then trying to get sold to another um, channel and then like accepted for an episode or two episodes or get like an episode order and then that getting canceled. So it was kind of up and down. So I really wanted as like a younger, my earlier 20s being like, I would love, I think this would be a great time to really try to pursue film acting. Mm. Um, so that's what was kind of what influenced me to go out there. And then really found that um, a lot of the improv and comedy I was doing back in Edmonton was uh, a lot more to my style and a lot more uh, successful and a lot easier to kind of get paid for a show <laughs> or to get, get a paid gig was a lot easier when there was a lot less people doing improv. Uh, so there's, you know, moving out to Vancouver, there's maybe four times as many opportunities, but there's 30 times as many people trying to get those <laughs> gigs and stuff. Sure. So I realized that if I actually did want to get paid or did want to get paid to like teach improv or do improv shows or do comedy shows or like do weird local commercials. It was just a lot more realistic back in Alberta where there's far less people doing that. Um, so after about a year there, I was like, yeah, you know what? It's cool out here, but I don't think that I would like to, I didn't like the grind very much. Didn't like the whole, like going for auditions, getting denied 10,000 times, going to do a stand-up comedy show with 80 other people on the lineup, all who were doing four minutes of comedy for the five people in the audience kind of thing. I was like, oh man, back home where it was more simple, it was a lot easier than out here in the big city. So, <laughs> yeah, I kind of have to imagine that it's similar to like if I were to move from Philadelphia, like, where there's tons of opportunity, but like there's also tons of other people doing it, so it might be a little bit harder to stand out. Or, yeah, you know, like, but then again, like you'll be, and it's not even a guarantee that you'd be seen by someone that like can't advance your career any better. Right. And it's kind of like, what are you, what are you doing it for? Are you trying to do this as a job? Or do you want a career out of comedy and entertainment, which is kind of my goal. And if that is my goal, then I can, I can make the money and make that a real, like, you know, reality living out in Alberta or in Edmonton. That is like a very realistic thing to do. Or are you doing it to try to do a big movie and try to get like fame out of the deal? Like what's, what's your end goal here? And my end goal was definitely more so like, I would like to have a job, where I can work and pay, you know, 80% of my bills through comedy. So that was uh, a lot more realistic than in Alberta. And also just a lot easier, not having to, like, do the mental grind and, you know, the emotional uh, dejection of, you know, getting uh, rejected yeah. uh, every week. I was like, yeah, this is not not really for me and not really worth it in my eyes. So that's kind of influenced the, the move back to old Alberta, 
which is a very Edmonton thing to do, to move out to Alberta, or sorry, to move out rather to Vancouver or Toronto or LA or something for like six, seven months or a year and then come back and be like, yeah, yeah I learned my lesson. I'm back here now. <laughs> so, um, you'd mentioned doing stand up. Yeah. Like, is that still something that you do with a regular? Yeah, not as much as I once. Uh, so stand up, I kind of got into also just through improv. I was doing a lot of improv and, um, was kind of looking at it. Like, how do I make this a job? How can I make a career out of comedy? Mm. Great. Stand-up seems to be the answer. You're not dividing a paycheck amongst five people in your improv or stand-up or sorry, in your sketch or your improv troupe. It's kind of just all going to you. So I was like, great. Maybe that seems like the most realistic way to make money at this. Um, so I went at it really as like, let's try to make some money from this. Let's see if I can make a job out of this, which is never the way you should approach anything. <laughs> and, um, uh, found quickly that the work I was putting into it did not match up the money you're getting out of it. Um, and also I'd get really, really stressed out before stand-up shows and they were going okay. I would get like a gig, get a casino here and there, or like get to open up for someone here and there. Um, but it, uh, the time came where I was making a lot more money just from doing improv corporate gigs uh, over than stand-up. So then it made a lot less sense to continue to do stand-up uh, just to be stressed out for doing open mics when I could go do two or three improv gigs in a week. Um, so now I'm at the point where I'm continuing to do stand-up, uh, but I'm trying to do solo improv at stand-up shows. Uh, so I've been doing a format called uh, Suicide, where I do a solo Dr. Seuss kind of story with punishments where I can't rhyme. So I'll get slapped by someone or I'll wear uh, a dog collar with a electro- uh, electrocution kind of nodules on it and electrocute myself if I can't rhyme. Um, and that's going really well. That's like a lot of fun. I still get to do improv. I uh, get to do all these extra stand-up spots, but I don't have to write jokes beforehand, which is uh, a big crux in the whole ordeal. So you're doing an improv form where if you back yourself into a corner and you can't rhyme, an audience member gets to like punish you? Yeah. So an audience member, or I'm kind of learning like the different ways of doing this. So at first... I was just doing slaps across the face. And that is great to get like an improviser or a comedian because generally they're a little bit more frail and they understand that the slap is a piece of entertainment where sound and reaction is what matters. Actually hitting me that hard doesn't matter that much. Um, I've made the mistake of like going to a stand-up show and like having my friend who I played lacrosse with or my lacrosse buddy is there and being like, hey, he's fine. He understands slapping. You slap me. (laughs) And then getting hit by like a big strong guy and then like actually feeling, you know, getting hit fully. It was like, oh my God, that was not the way to do the show at all. So it was a little bit of a trial and error through like, oh, what kind of person should I be asking to slap me for this? Um, but yeah, it's, it's a really fun show and it's uh, kind of adds more stakes to the rhyming because I find if I'm just like freestyle rapping kid or an audience, a kid story. It's all right, but it's kind of fun to add a lot more stakes to the actual skill component of rhyming to it. So, mm. yeah, I've been doing that at a lot of stand-up shows now. And, um, yeah, because you only do so many improv shows a week. Like, I could do maybe two or three improv shows a week, whereas there's, you know, five stand-up shows in the city a week. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, nice to get a lot more stage time and a lot more like comedy experience while uh, living outside of the box of the traditional stand-up world because I find that – just writing stand-up jokes and then telling them over and over again with such an improv brain. I get so bored of the jokes that I'm telling and so bored of the material where it's like, "Ah, I've told this joke 40 times. It's not funny to me at all anymore. It's kind of hard to fake the excitement for the audience. So I find that um, doing improv at stand-up shows kind of allows me to find the old enjoyment for myself and continue to enjoy the shows. So, Um, How does does the suicide show work within a sketch i mean in, within a stamp show like does it like fit thematically like ish i so generally for stand up or for improv rather if you've got a suggestion from the audience you never want to get like the dirty or gross suggestion because then where do you go from there and it just kind of turns into a big clusterfuck i find for these for like a bar audience or a, like a comedy club you really do have to go for those gross suggestions and pick those on because if you're telling a story about like, oh man, like I took one time a suggestion, I took money, 
And I told like a great Dr. Seuss about how a town learned that capitalism maybe isn't the best option. And that's just like for a comedy club, people are like, well, that's great that we learned a social studies lesson, but that wasn't funny. <laughs> I found it's a lot more uh, beneficial to take a suggestion like crack cocaine or an orgy or pornography or something like that. Um, because then if you add the element of rhyming to that, it doesn't, it doesn't stay like a big hokey kind of gross blue collar thing. And the rhyming kind of elevates it to a weird hybrid of like Shakespeare meets jackass. So it's, it, it's a definitely like a weird format. Um, but I find that it works in comedy clubs, um, and can kind of work with a good variety of audiences, which is a big challenge up in Alberta, where I think I imagine any kind of more rural comedy scene where you're going to have audiences that are like university kids or college kids who want more uh, like liberal clean cut uh, comedy with like good messages in it and maybe more, you know, very unoffensive. Um, when you also have audiences that are like blue collar welders who are drunk and want to hear some gross, nasty words. So it's, <laughs> it's kind of hard to find a balance of like, how can I entertain both sides of these audiences if you want to have uh, do kind of career comedy in Alberta or like a Kentucky or North Dakota or Texas or wherever it may be. How do you work both the Austin crowd and how do you both work like the rural Texan crowd is kind of the, uh, the challenge. Yeah. I don't think I've talked to any of the others about the audiences. Like I looked at like you were talking about Edmonton and, and, uh, being pretty rural, I looked at the map and like, like Edmonton feels like it's like the the northernmost, um, like major city for Canada. Yeah, I think it's the most major kind of northern city we got in North America. I guess unless you get up to Alaska, it's kind of on the edge of the frontier. Like everyone kind of north of us is all weird farm towns or like oil towns or like diamond mines and yeah, it, yeah. Nikki had mentioned working like being on a farm and oil and like all that stuff so like and then but there seems to be also a pretty decent like education scene yeah it's a weird it's a weird anomaly living in edmonton because it's definitely uh you get the college kids you get like it's a weird liberal hub surrounded by a very conservative rural province so it's a weird place have you guys have you noticed like a major um like are like the more conservative like I don't know, blue collar farm oil people. Are they coming out for improv shows? Like, do you notice that audience? Um, so if we're doing small, like uh, where Nikki is from, she's from Athabasca, which is like a town we'll go up and do shows in quite a bit as a troupe. And they are like a much more blue collar crowd. So we will write sketches specifically for that crowd and try to try to do that. Do they come into the city to see shows? Not necessarily as much. Um, a lot of our town shows in the city are like actually downtown. So you get a lot more like young professionals, a lot more white collar people in their early thirties is like our average audience for city shows. So it really does force us to have like really dynamic sketches and really dynamic material to ensure that like we can go out to a small town and still entertain people, or we can do a show like a fringe festival or like an, you know, a theater festival and not seem like a bunch of crazy rednecks. Because I I never thought about like something like that. Because you know I could write something that could play in Philadelphia, you know the the big city in in my state, but if I go like two hours west in Pennsylvania, it's a completely different audience. It's a completely different crowd. It's a completely different lifestyle. Like I got it. So it's what, you, it might before? not work. Does Scranton exists. Is that a place where people actually go, or is that just like a mythical? No, Scranton is an actual city. Yes. Right. Would it be like a classic kind of like small town city where something that you would write in Philadelphia not necessarily would land in Scranton? I think Scranton would be fine, but like yeah. there's there's other smaller cities around like um, Lancaster, which is you know, are you familiar with like Amish country? Like that phrase? Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, like that kind of stuff. Like, I mean, granted, you're not going to do a comedy show for the Amish because I doubt that they <laughs> that they care, but like it's still you know huge farmland it's still very rural like it's a much different right. crowd like, do you I, think that amish people have their own comedy nights within their amish communities i i'm intrigued now i want that to be yeah. a thing i don't think it is that's gotta be a vice documentary for sure <laughs> uh yeah go pitch that to vice and see and go digging 
like the hip hop hip hop comedy scenes of Amish country. Well, I don't know. Like, I remember this being a thing. I don't know how big of a thing it was, but like, I'm, I'm going to say like ten years ago, um, there was like a uh, a reality show where they followed Amish kids that did that. They do a thing where they leave their people for like an, a year, right, and like see the outside world and decide if they want to keep on like, living seventeen hundred right. or get. So, like, there was this weird fascin- fascination with Amish people, like ten years ago. Yeah, I have an uncle who is um, pretty weird guy. In the eighties, <laughs> he decided to do just like nothing but drugs and kind of melt his mind into uh, be like a nonsense sixty year old mm-hmm. and. Now he has decided that his move is to move up to a small community called Lacrete, uh, which is a tiny Mennonite Amish community in northern Alberta. And he went out there with the goal of finding a wife. <laughs> and no one's heard from him in the last like two or three years afterwards. Wow. We don't know what happened, but so, he may have converted. So if you're listening to this, reach out to your family and tell them everything's okay. Yeah, if you have an uncle who's thinking about going to Amish territory, stop him. Uh, and also, Uncle Rock, if you hear this, what's up? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so the experience of, of working with different audiences, I don't think... Yeah, it's such a bizarre thing. I don't think I've ever really thought about it. Um, Is that like a thing in Philadelphia where like you'll ever do a show like in the city or like go do a small town gig? Or those, that's just like not the reality for you folks? I, I've really only performed in Philadelphia. Like, um, I I'd have to talk to other people because like I, th- we've heard stories of um, one sketch group like doing college shows and having to readjust things. But like, I don't think they've ever been like, oh, let's go to some random podunk town and and do a show in a bar. Like that doesn't seem like a thing that we really um, encounter or welcome to do. Yeah, it's, it's such a weird. Even like through the stand-up community, that's a big thing of like. The stand-up comedians in Alberta who are doing it for a job will often bomb or do really badly in Edmonton or the big cities and will just kill in the smaller communities, like the more rural places, because all their material is like Larry the Cable Guy, Jeff Foxworthy kind of type shit, like really hoe down, oh boy, I was hunting for a deer and the deer shot me, oh boy. Right, that, and that's something that like, fast, that's another thing that really fascinates me, where like comedy is so universal Everyone likes to laugh. Everyone, you know, wants to laugh. Right. But it be, it's it's not a universal thing. Because, like, you you mentioned, like, you know, Larry the Cable Guy and Jeff Fox already. There are tons of comedians that do not step foot into Philadelphia. But they'll do some of, like, those smaller theaters that are, like, an hour and a half away. And they'll sell out completely. And kill it, yeah. Like The question is, is, it like, do you want to make money and do you want to make a job from this? And... Are you willing to stoop to that level and write some dumb ass blue collar shit? And uh, I think the answer for us has been like, yeah, kinda. <laughs> We're not going to do that in Philadelphia. We're not going to do that stuff in festivals. But like, we definitely have some sketches that like, all right, we're doing our rural show. We're doing our traveling show. We're doing like, all right, we're doing a scene with all university kids tonight. We're going to do like our super liberal sketches. So we uh, really try to diversify in our. We can try to connect with audiences more and kind of give people a good show no matter what. Now I'm super curious to see your see your rural show. So we have a song that is, here's an example for it. It's a, <laughs> The Three King, it would not land at all. It's a song mm-hmm. to uh, The We Three Kings, uh, the classic from Christmas Carol, which is all about small towns in Alberta and just like making fun of those individual small towns for their like stereotypes. Um. And their stereotypes being like, oh, man, everyone there is all they do is eat beef or everyone there. Yeah, they all snort oil or whatever the weird thing is. So we uh, have some, like, some super specific like small town comedy sketches. Hmm. That's uh, it's funny because like, there's uh, the other thing uh, that comedians seem to mention or talk about is like, what is uh, what's the actual phrase? I'm going to I'm totally going to screw it up. Uh, local jokes get you local work or something like that. Oh yeah, but like at the same time, like if it's still getting you work, like yeah, we'd rather have local work than no work, so we'll take it. Yeah, yeah, and that's uh, now. I think you completely changed my mind on it because, like, I've seen like stand-up comedians in Philadelphia like make very specific references to very specific neighborhoods and stuff, and I'm just like, Wah. like I don't like not like booing them, but like it's not what I want to hear, right? Like. Oh, cheer about that guy in Kensington. Blah, blah, blah. Like I'm like, well, whatever. Move on. Like, 
but like yeah it's still work it's still stuff to do it, yeah it definitely can get tired and it's like by no means like a, a can you can call it lazy joke writing but we have like one sketch that we do called weekend dj where every single time we're touring for it we always try to find the local like shitty radio station that'd be like the broy frat station to make fun of and often they're like we don't have a radio station but like this nightclub would have it so we'll just like insert that line so awkwardly and be like what do you think this is for an addition for 92 lone star uh fm the bill and joe show local radio station and just like do a really slow take to the audience just to really rub in how cheap we are and how much we're just reaching for that local gag. <laughs> so I think we're probably going to do that one in Philly. So we'll probably be doing that exact joke. <laughs> I'll, I'll try to remember which uh, radio station you guys need to. Oh yeah. To you can think of like a real gross, nasty local radio station. We would love to, we would love to make a riff to them. <laughs> um, so you've been doing comedy for a while. So like your mother, uh, and whenever I ask this question, I ask this question to everybody because I'm always curious. Uh, you know, it could be something philosophical, something existential about life, or just something practical about the craft of comedy. What's something that you've learned from doing it that you could pass on to a new writer, someone that's just getting started? Oh, man. Um, I would say, like, a big thing that, like, I've had to learn myself is just, like, figure out why you're doing it. What like what's your purpose? What why are you why are you doing all this weird stuff? Why are you writing jokes and putting yourself in front of strangers to try to make them laugh? Like what's the purpose of it all? Mm. And then try to like write or live with that goal in mind. Um, so I think for me for a while I was like really concerned as like a younger like teen trying to do stand up and stuff of being like, Oh man, I just wanna be like a big stand up star. That'll be the dream. And I think for me, learning that, like, well, that's, like, not necessary. What I really want to do out of this is ultimately not have to have another job. If I can tell jokes, hang out with my friends, write funny sketches, do improv or do stand-up, or just have a fun time with my friends and be able to pay the bills through that, that's kind of the ultimate goal. So if that is your goal, I think uh, trying to work towards that is a, a very good idea, as opposed to going into comedy or this, like, weird weird crazy business for the wrong reasons or trying to go in to be like i'm gonna become a star i don't think it's a very a very good attitude to have and i think if you do that you'll end up very stressed out a lot of the time and very disappointed a lot of the time and uh can probably come out bitter and you'll probably do comedy for a couple of years and then come out a bit uh bitter and realize you know oh, stand-up sucks i think there's a lot of people who do that and will go into stand-up for a year or two years and then be like ah, i got hard so i quit so I think, uh, yeah, figure out your intentions, figure out why you're going into this crazy thing for the first place, and keep that in mind uh, and everything you're doing, and kind of remind yourself of that. And I think that if you uh, do that, then you'll be happy. So I guess in conclusion, uh, lower your expectations and be realistic, and then you'll die with less regret. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's something that, like... I make jokes about is like I'll go to a show like I I go into shows and I and I have just just lo such low expectations anymore like like if you exceed my expectations good like be because like I would go to certain things and be like oh man it's gonna be the greatest night ever this is gonna be so much fun and be like instantly it's still a really fun night so now like I I have to walk into things be like all right this is gonna be enjoyable totally yeah I think always just like under promise over perform. <laughs> is also a good thing to live by <laughs> and and uh and finally uh why comedy uh why is comedy your chosen way of spending your time and i mean you mentioned trying to earn a living from it why is it comedy oh man it's just so much better than real work if you ever have a real job it just sucks so bad <laughs> like i'm a i'm a substitute teacher right now mm -hmm. and that is the best job i've had and that's for sure the closest job i've ever had to that is comedy Whereas it's like, I work three days a week, I show up at a new random ass place in a room full of strangers, I have about 30 seconds to make a good first impression on them, if I make that good first impression, it's going to be a smooth sailing, easy time where I kind of go through the motions, if I don't make a good impression on them, they're going to really fuck with me, and they're going to heckle me, and it's going to be one hell of a day, because a substitute teacher 
is pretty as close as you get to being a traveling stand-up comedian uh, in the real world. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I guess why comedy? Because it's always different. It'll always be new. Uh, it's not going to be boring. It's never going to be easy. Um, so it's like a, it's a cool active job, I think, to pursue. And also it's so much better than like manual labor. <laughs> uh, yeah, probably. Yeah. Yeah, I worked at a golf course for like a summer. Uh, I got paid $11 an hour to like do landscaping at a golf course. And after that, I was like, oh my God, anything but this. This is awful. I'm not made for movement. So yeah, I'd say it's like a cool, satisfying job that is uh, realistic and uh, rewarding. Yeah, I think it's a very rewarding job too. So I would say there's a lot of benefits towards comedy. And it's not too easy. It's nothing you can get lazy and compliant with. And then next thing you know, you're 65 years old and you've been doing the same thing your whole life. I think it's a thing that you can pursue that will be satisfying and something that you won't regret as an old person. And I think that's a big part of my life is trying to live towards not being full of regret as an elderly person. (laughs) So I feel like very few people on their deathbed are like, oh, I wish I spent less time making jokes yeah. with my friends. Why did I spend so much time pursuing my dream and traveling the world? Ah. So I think that's a, a motivator for me. It seems like it seems like the thing to do. Chris and the rest of Marvin Berry are performing at Philly Sketchfest on Friday, June 2nd in the 7 p.m. block, along with the incredible shrinking Matt and Jackie and Patrick Wright Sketches. Tickets are available at Ticketfly.com or using the redirect link myfirstsketch.com slash tickets. They'll return to Edmonton and perform at Improvaganza on June 17th at the Rapid Fire Theater. More information about that can be found at rapidfiretheater.com. My First Sketch is a Philly Sketchfest production. You can find out more information at phillysketchfest.com or on Twitter at phlsketchfest, on Instagram at phillysketchfest, and use the hashtag phlsketchfest10. The music on this episode is by the band Nono, which you can check out at nonoband.bandcamp.com. Like my first sketch on Facebook, this is Josh Hyam. Thanks for listening. Come to Philly Sketch Fest.